the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your, forefathers, to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. You know, every time we study through a book of the Bible here at Rio, which is typically the way that we do it, not always, but usually, um, 
there are certain passages of scripture, certain parts of the story that you come to in every one of these books that you, you kind of come to and maybe like in your personal worship or something or I as the communicator come to and go, what do I do with this? You know, exactly like, what am I supposed to do in response to this? And I think that this week is a good example of that because today, as you just heard, you know, we come to this story of the institution of the Passover and then of the consecration of the firstborn and then of the institution of this other feast or festival celebrated by the Jews called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so I think it's real natural for us to kind of pause and go, yeah, I don't know, like, you know, am I supposed to, as a Christian in 2018 living here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, keep the Passover? Am I supposed to do that? Should I have consecrated my firstborn? Oh, and by the way, Tom, I, I am a firstborn in the family that I was born into, so should I text my parents and say, did you consecrate me? P.S. Look up consecration, send me the definition. You know, like, am, am I supposed to do that? Like, what about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Do we keep that? And so here's the answer. The answer is yes to all of those questions, but how is really what we're going to talk about. And we're going to begin with the Feast of the Passover because that's where, as you just heard, the passage begins, and it really flows right out of last week. So what happened last week? Well, last week we looked at the great and climactic plague by which God finally broke the back of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and won the freedom of his people, the Israelites, from, as you just heard, 430 years of slavery there in the land of Egypt. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that our God is a God who must bring judgment. And even though we kind of recoil a little bit, from that, as we worked it through, we realized, no, 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 we're totally good with that. We, we, we actually want that. We, we long for that. We look at the madness in our world, the, the evil and awful things that happen, the oppression, the injustice, the suffering, the disease, the whole of it, and we think, good grief, Lord, why are you waiting? Don't we? And as we also said, every single one of us has our own little list, or maybe not a little list, maybe a big long list of people that we really want God to bring judgment on. Historic figures like Hitler and Stalin, those are easy ones. ISIS, Boko Haram, sex traffickers, school shooters. We talked about all that last week. And the Israelites had that list too. So their list, it was a little bit shorter. It was Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God, what are you doing? Like 430 years, good grief. Bring judgment on these people. But here's the deal. Don't bring judgment on us. And that's what we want too. Bring judgment on these people, Lord. And don't bring judgment on us. But the problem that the Israelites had and that we have is that, you know, we're not Hitler. We're not Stalin. We're not, we're not unhinged people who do evil, awful, murderous things, for which, by the way, I'm immensely grateful. But, but we're not completely innocent before the Lord either. There is within us selfishness. There is within us pride. There is within us dishonesty. We, we lie when it serves our purposes, at least sometimes. We make idols for ourselves. We make idols of ourselves. I mean, when we're honest, we too are guilty. And so God comes to the whole land of Egypt and he says to his people, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to bring judgment on every guilty person in the land of Egypt. And this might come as a surprise to you, but that also includes all of you Israelites. Now, maybe you're not as bad as the Egyptians, but I'm a perfectly holy God, and I must bring judgment. 
So here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a perfect spotless innocent lamb. I want you to kill that lamb, one per family, and I want you to take the blood of that perfect spotless innocent lamb, and I want you to paint the doorposts of your homes and the lintel above the doors of your homes, and on the night of judgment, I want you to gather together with your family underneath the blood, if you will, inside of the door, the bloody door of that home, and I am going to pass over those whose guilt before me has been covered over, whose debt to me has been been paid in full by the blood of the Lamb, and I'll visit everyone else who isn't. And that's exactly what happened. And then today, of course, he leads them out of the nation of Egypt, which is like a hooray moment, you know, like if you've been in the study, when he read that, I kind of wanted to stand up and go, yes, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's awesome. And the first thing that he does is he says, guys, I want you to remember your deliverance. And here's how I want you to do it. Every single year, you are going to commemorate the deliverance that is yours because of the blood of the innocent shed on behalf of the guilty through this feast called the Passover, which now brings us to the question of, well, okay, that's cool for them, and I sort of understand that. But what about me? Like, as a Christian, 2018, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, do I have to celebrate the Passover answer? I already gave it to you is yes, and the question then is how. And for the answer to that, you need to go to the New Testament where you find the Lord Christ, and who is He? He is God made man. He is the Son of God, and He is the Son of man. He is the God who has not forsaken us, far from it. He's come to us as one of us, and who has been introduced to us by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, meaning of the people in this world who realize that, okay, whereas we're not Hitler, we're not Stalin, we're not, you know, Egyptians, if you will, in that sense, but we're not completely innocent either, and we can't really do anything about it, so we need some help. And we claim the blood of the Lamb of God who is Christ, His body broken, His blood shed on our behalf as a covering for us, as a payment for us. We find Jesus on the night that He's betrayed, the night in which His sufferings for our sin in our place, innocent for the guilty, begin, and He gathers together with His disciples in the upper room, a second-story room in somebody's house, and he gathers with them for the purpose of celebrating the Passover meal that we just read about. But he says to these guys, hey, listen, let me tell you something about this meal. I want to reveal to you what it has always been about, because it's not just about the Israelites and Moses and the deliverance that they had because of the blood of the perfect lambs way back then from Egypt. It's about me, and it's about you, and it's about the deliverance that I'm about to offer by means of my body broken and my blood shed. He takes up the unleavened bread, leaven in the New Testament being an emblem or an image of sin. So unleavened bread. And he says, this is my body, my sinless self broken for you. This cup, he says, is the cup of the new covenant. This, this is poured out. My blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And what does Paul say? He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. What happens then? What happens then is that the madness ends. He comes to bring all of the craziness, all of the suffering, all of the oppression, all of the injustice, all of it to an end to balance out the scales. And on that day, he passes over those who have done what? Who have realized that, okay, whereas I'm not Hitler, got it. I'm not innocent either. And I've claimed the blood of Christ as the forgiveness of my sin. Guys, when we come to the communion table, we're celebrating, if you will, the Christian Passover. 
And you say, all right, so check that one off. But then what about the consecration of the firstborn? Because I heard something about that. And I've been wondering about that. You know, again, I have a firstborn. I am, at least in my case, a firstborn. What's the deal with that? Well, when you, again, when you get to the New Testament, in light of the far greater deliverance of the far greater Passover lamb, God comes and says, okay, so here's what I'm doing now. I'm not just claiming the firstborn in every Christian family. I'm claiming every Christian person. And that's what it means to consecrate. It means to claim ownership of, to take as one's own, and to set apart for one's own plans and one's own purposes. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that your body, meaning your physical body, is a temple? What is a temple? It's a place where God lives. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you is the idea and whom you have from God as a gift? And so then, you are not your own. You don't belong to you anymore. And that is an awesome and amazing thing. But why is that? Well, because you were bought with a price. And what was the price? (laughs) Well, it's the price of the precious life of the Son of God Himself. And so then what does Paul say? He says, hey, you want to know what to do now? Here's the deal. Glorify God in your body. And you're like, well, that's sounds wonderful, but it's incredibly ambiguous. Like, what in the world does that mean exactly? Well, think about it this way, and I've said this in the past. What do you you use your body to do? Let me ask it this way. Is there anything that you do that you don't use your body to do? Don't don't think hard on this, okay? No, okay. (laughs) So, what is Paul saying? He's coming to me, and he's coming to you, and he's going, okay, so here's the deal. In the way that you think, in the words that you say and don't say, in the things that you do and don't do, and, and the things that you look at and don't look at, and listen to and don't listen to, the places you go and don't go, in all that you are, in all that you have, in all that you do, glorify God with it. And what better use could you put all that you are and all that you have and all that you do to? God doesn't come taking. He comes giving. He gives us His Son, and then He gives us purpose, and He gives us meaning, And he gives us joy in the doing of the very things that he's created us to do, which leaves us with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, you know, what do you do with that? Well, again, when you get to the New Testament, leaven becomes an emblem or a symbol for sin. It's like yeast, by the way, leaven. It makes bread rise. And here's the thing about leaven, and it kind of works as you think about it in terms of sin. It is virtually imperceptible, which is true, isn't it? I mean, we're real good at seeing it in other people, but in ourselves, it's a little bit different. All right, once it gets into a lump of dough, you can't get it out, and you can't reverse its effects. And so you might think that you're cooking unleavened bread. I don't know why you'd want to do that. But in any event, if you did, you'd spread it out, you know, and you'd be watching it in your oven, and then all of a sudden it would start to rise. And you'd think, oh, good grief. Some leaven got in my bread. And so Paul grabs hold of that analogy, and he says this about the sin of leaven or the leaven of sin in in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 6. And this is instructive. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So it really doesn't matter how much of it you have. The whole of you is leavened is the idea. 
So if you get a little leaven in a lump of dough and you spread it out, you know, and you cook it, it's not like one corner rises where the leaven's located. No, no, no. It makes its way through the whole lump and the entire thing rises is the point. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so then he says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. That's completely unleavened is the idea. But then he confuses us a bit by then saying, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Sometimes I read Paul and I think, please, just, can you just, just say it, man. Just, I, I just, I get confused. I, I just, just say it, you know. I'm just a bottom line guy. Just give me the bottom line, you know. So let me give you the bottom line. What is he saying? He's saying that by nature, we are all of us filled with a little leaven. We're not out there doing evil, awful, murderous things. But there's a little bit in us, isn't there? And what has he taught us about the leaven? A little bit? Leaven's the whole. Oh, good grief. Now we're doomed, but we're not doomed. We are unleavened before God. Why? Because of our Passover lamb who is Christ, who has suffered and died, that he might pay the price for the whole of our leaven, however much there is or however little which means before him we are unleavened. And yet, I don't know about you, but every day I still struggle with a little bit of selfishness. Every day I get irritated for sure by somebody in traffic. Every day I can be a little bit prideful and maybe a little bit dishonest and I create idols for myself and make an idol of myself. And I still struggle oftentimes with the very things that Jesus suffered and died to set me free from. And since Paul's aware of these things, he's like, well, then let me tell you how to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because he continues in verse 8, and he says, therefore, let us therefore celebrate the festival, meaning the festival or Feast of Unleavened Bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And again, let me just kind of give you the bottom line. What he's saying here is he's saying we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread today by ridding ourselves as opposed to our kitchens of leaven, of the very things that Christ had to suffer and die to save us from. And the motive, by the way, for doing this is not guilt. It's not ought to. It's not, this is what good Christians do. And well, I guess this is my responsibility now and I'm supposed to, it's none of that. The motive for doing this is love. St. Augustine is without question one of the greatest theologians that the church has ever produced. Many would say the greatest. And he had a brilliant definition of sin. I love it. He said that sin is disordered love. It's loving things in the wrong order. The gospel comes to us with a crucified Savior that we are not deserving of and says, here, here is one that you can love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He is the most easy to love person in the whole of the universe. And he is to be loved by us above all things. Order your loves beneath him. And what will happen? Organically, what will happen? You'll start getting rid of leaven, man. That's what will happen. And what's interesting is that Moses and the Israelites, these very ones whom we just saw have now left Egypt and headed out into the wilderness, are the ones who later on, in their narrative at least, show us what happens when we don't do this. For Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 10, 
beginning in verse 1, and listen to what he says. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and here the fathers he's talking about are Moses and the Israelites, this first generation that leaves Egypt. Our fathers, he says, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And you're like, Tom, bottom line, okay. What he's saying to us is that Moses and the Israelites, this first generation that left Egypt, were just like us. That's it. He's saying, oh yeah, you you know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and how God by His Spirit and through His Word and with His people leads and guides you through life. Well, they were supernaturally guided too. You've been baptized. They experienced a baptism of a sort. You eat and drink of a meal that is representative of the Lord Christ. Well, so did they. They're just like you and yet, nevertheless, Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. Let me give you the literal translation of that. They were put to death in the wilderness. And boy, were they. It's estimated that at least two million Israelites left Egypt. You heard the number 600,000, but if you were listening carefully, that was just the men. So if you add in the women and you add in the kids, and then if you add in the mixed multitude of Egyptians, which is a remarkable thought if you think about it, here are all these Egyptians who through all of the plagues that have just been inflicted upon Israel, or Egypt and that have overthrown, put to death if you will, their gods. Okay, they leave with the Israelites that they were the slaveholders of the previous day as a now a minority part of this company. That's conversion. So you have at least two million of these people who leave. Do you know how many of that original generation made it into the promised land eventually? Two. Two out of two million. And the reason for that is because Moses leads them all the way up to to the promised land. He sends in 12 spies, if you know the story. Ten of them come back and say, man, we got no shot against the people of this land. They're they're big, they're powerful, they're well-armed, they're this, they're that, they're everything that we're not. We have no chance. We definitely should not try to go in there and take the land. And the other two say, what are you kidding me? Our God just decimated Pharaoh and Egypt. These guys are nothing compared to that. And our God has said, go in and take the land. What are we waiting for? And the people of Israel said, now we're going to take a pass on that. They listened to the 10 and they don't want to go in. And the Lord says, okay, so here's how this is going to work then. You're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies out. And the next generation plus the two faithful ones are going to get the land. And for 40 years at the rate of about 137 people a day, They were like a walking graveyard. That's unbelievable. And the message of this is that disordered love brings death. And the truth is we already know that. We experience that. Look, if you love your work or if you love money more than your family, it will introduce death into that whole equation. If you love food or drink more than your health, death will eventually come. If you like pornography more than your marriage, death will eventually come. Loving things out of order brings death. And so Paul comes to us and says, look, there are two ways to learn this. You can learn this by experience or you can learn this by the experience of someone else. And Moses and the Israelites suffered all of this in the wilderness. 
so that you might learn it from them. He says in verse 6, now these things took place with them as examples for us. Why? So that we might learn from their experience is the idea, not to desire or to love evil as they did. So how do we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread today as Christians? We do it by ridding ourselves, not our kitchens, of the leaven of our sin. And we do that by falling more and more and more in love with Jesus. All right, so let me try to tie it all together with a story. So a week ago Wednesday, uh, the day of the shooting at Douglas High School, my daughter Morgan, who is a first-year teacher at a different school uh, here in Broward County, texted me. And she reminded me of something that I'd forgotten, which is that one of the girls in her wedding, also a first-year teacher, is a teacher at Douglas High School. And so, you know, we're all freaking out already, and then add to the equation somebody that we know and really care for. And so all day, I'm like texting her, have you heard from her? Have you heard from her? Have you? Finally, you know, Morgan said, I will let you know when I hear something, you know. But I mean, it's intense. So Wednesday night, she texts me. She said, I heard from her. She's okay physically. Um, but as the story began to unfold as they talked, uh, what happened with this particular teacher is that she had a student go to the bathroom just before the shooting, and so he came back into her room, and the door to the classroom was closing, and it was almost completely closed when the first round went off. And I don't know how many of you guys have ever been around uh, this kind of rifle, Uh, but I go shooting with my dad up in North Carolina, and there are a lot of guys at this big outdoor place who bring these kinds of guns to the shooting range, and it sounds like a cannon with ear protection on outside. So take that off and put it in a hallway and try to imagine how loud that must have been. She immediately knew something was wrong and ran to the door, locked the door, shut the lights off and said to all the students who were in her class, get over here, get behind my desk, get up against the wall and no one make a noise or he's going to know we're here. And so they all obeyed her perfectly and this guy literally walked by her room and must have assumed that it was just not in use. And then he hit the room next to them and the one beyond that, and the two on the other side of the hallway. And this girl, who is not a believer, said you know, to Morgan, and then later to my wife, you know, she said, I can't really explain this, she said, but I could feel the presence of God in that room. She said, I just knew somehow, and I don't know why my room and not somebody else's room, and please don't ask me, I don't know either. I don't think I'm capable of that kind of understanding, frankly. But I knew that in our room, God was there and we were going to be safe. And so on Friday night, so two nights later, she texts Morgan and Morgan and Will, her husband, are at our house. We're just sitting around the table. And she said, I need to talk to somebody about God. And my wife, Beth, said, well, would she talk to me? And Morgan said, will you talk to my mom? And she said, yes. And so the next morning, they met at 9.30, and Beth had the privilege of leading this precious girl to faith in Jesus, which is amazing. And then this precious girl went home and shared the gospel with her mom. (laughs) And then she wrote my wife, my mom now believes, you know, big capital letters, you know, believes. It was so, it was cool. It was a glimpse of some light coming out of a really evil, awful, and dark situation. And we should look for those kinds of things. But as I think about her now, what's her next step? Well, I mean, you know, next time communion is served, 
She ought to come to the table. Indeed, she's commanded, just like me and you, to come to the table. Do this in remembrance of me. And why is she able to come to the table? Because Christ is her Passover lamb. She has realized he suffered and died. This body, this, this wine, this blood, this is for me. So she should do that. Beyond that, as her faith grows and her understanding matures of this decision that, that God has led her into, she needs to come to realize that her life is no longer her own, and that's like the greatest of all things. Now she has the privilege of leading it and living it for the one who alone in the end matters, and the one who alone in the end endures. And as she falls more and more in love with him, as she takes up his word and personal worship and corporate worship and grows in community with other Christians and, and figures out how he's wired her to be used in service and in evangelism and so forth, as she learns to walk with him and love Jesus, he is going by that love to transform organically her life. And what will happen is she'll end up celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that she will die and die more and more unto sin, the old leaven, and live and live more and more unto Christ her Savior. So those are the next steps for her, but here's the deal. Um, the question I want you to consider is, what is the next step for you? What is the next step for you? You know, have you realized that, okay, yeah, you're not the ultimate bad person. You got it. But, you know, come on. There's some in there. And have you given yourself to Jesus? Have you accepted what he has done for you on the cross that you might be authentically freed and delivered from far worse things than Pharaoh in Egypt and delivered unto, unto far more glorious things than that earthly promised land those guys got headed toward? Have you done that? Because if not, that's your step. Are you holding back from the Lord? You know, Lord, I am mostly consecrated to you. I, I'm 98% I'm, I'm consecrated to you, you know? I, I'm, uh, yeah, he's like, no, 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 sorry. Like, I, I bought you with Jesus. <laughs> so like, you're mine. And you need to surrender that last bit. Or is there some leaven in your life? And you know what it is. As soon as leaven comes up, or at least sin comes up, that's the thing that starts flashing over here, you know? That the Lord just seems to keep bringing back. That you need to deal with. That you need to get some help with. Is that where you're at? Because whatever the next step is, you need to take it. And in taking it, what you'll discover is that it is life to you, that it is light to you, that it is joy to you, that it is freedom to you, even if it's really, really hard for you. So what's your next step? And how can we help you take it? Think about that, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for um, even the passages of Scripture that seem to be a little more obscure to us. They are your word, and they are precious, and there is life within them. God, we are so thankful for the Savior, the one who has come, the one who has given his life that we might be forgiven. And so then, Lord, we bring our sin to you. We ask you to forgive us, to fill us with your Holy Spirit to save and redeem us from ourselves. Lord, to humble us before you, to take us as your own, and to use us to bring you glory in everything that we do and everything that we are. Do these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.